Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. All right, well, welcome everyone. I'm uh, really thankful that you are here. We're going to be going through Genesis 43 and 44 today. And this is, uh, as you can see by the little subtitles in your Bible, this is Joseph's brothers return to Egypt. And a little backstory, you might remember when Father Chris taught this uh, last week. He taught about uh, Joseph and his uh, being sold by his brothers into slavery. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Joseph was then made... um, He was falsely accused and put into prison, and from that point, he was actually lifted out of his imprisonment because of prophetic dreams and his competence, and he was put in a position of power in Egypt. In fact, uh, you'll see in this text that that one of his brothers refers to him as equal in power to Pharaoh himself, and so he really was kind of the governor of Egypt. He was, you know, Pharaoh's right-hand man in the land, and so... You'll also may remember that Joseph's brothers had already come down to Egypt. They, uh, on their trip to Egypt, they were looking to buy food, and they, they brought silver and gave it to Joseph. And what Joseph did is he, he had the silver returned to their sacks, if you'll remember that. And then he also, um, he also had Simeon, one of the brothers, put in prison and uh, basically, as, as kind of a collateral, and, and the brother, as the brothers went away, and so where we find the brothers right now is back at home. The, the famine is still continuing on, and they have one brother that's missing from the bunch. And so we're going to begin reading at Genesis chapter 43, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to kind of go through this piece by piece. So Genesis 43, 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man, referring to Joseph, solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And again, just to catch us up, the brother that needs to go with them is Benjamin. And so they're saying, you know, the man, Joseph, won't see us unless Benjamin comes with us this time. Verse 6, Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, Then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. 
I'm going to pause there, and we're going to go into the text a little bit more. Uh, do you all have any questions in the meantime before we continue to jump in? Nothing time being? All right, good. Um, it's not all right, good. I would welcome your questions, but it's all right, good. Silence, no. Um, but, it, but it does give us time to plow, plow ahead. So a couple things. Notice that the famine is still severe. Do you remember in Joseph's dreams how long they said that the famine would be? Seven years, yep. So again, they're probably a, a few years into it now. And um, you know they've got their herds to care for. They've got their, their families to care for. I mean, there's, you know, again, this is total devastation. And when we think of their wealth, right, their wealth is often in their livestock. And so this isn't just, you know, a few lean years as we might consider them. I mean, we've all been through, I'm sure, periods of times where we've had to kind of um, tighten our belts a little bit and make it through, uh, either in school. Uh, when you're going through school or, or just difficult financial downturns or anything like that. Well, for them, if you lose your livestock, that's generations of stored wealth and savings that are gone. I mean, that's, that's building that back up is, is incredibly difficult in that time. And so, um, obviously, a famine is a big deal. And so we look here, and their father says, go again, buy us a little food. And look who responds. Do you see that in verse 3? Who is it that speaks back to him? It's, it's Judah. It's Judah. Now, is Judah the firstborn? You'd think so, but it's actually Reuben. If you'll remember, Reuben was the firstborn son. Reuben was the one who, uh, you know, who again, by birthright, right, he was the one that actually tried to claim his father's, or claim his father's place by taking one of his father's concubines taking one of Jacob's concubines, and in that way, he is the firstborn son, this was earlier in Genesis, tried to claim that role of being the patriarch of the family by taking a concubine for himself from his father. Um, that didn't go particularly well for him. And then Reuben was the one who suggested that they don't murder Joseph, but instead that they sell him and make a profit out of that so that he would stay alive. Well, at this point, you would think that the firstborn son would be speaking, but he's not because Reuben has actually lost his position of leadership. Even though it's a natural uh, position that he would be born into, he's actually squandered his influence. I want to I take you back to the last chapter and look with me at verse 22 of Genesis 42. And Reuben answered them. This is, this is when they're talking about the disaster that came upon them. And he tells his brothers, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Just a basic life principle in leadership, and I think this is kind of something that's intuitive to all of us. When you're a leader and you start blaming the people around you for, for the failings of the group, you, are, you, have, you have lost your respect as leadership, and you are, it's only a matter of time that you remain in that position, right? If you're a leader and you start saying, well, this is all your fault, and this is your fault, and this is his fault, you, you've, lost the, you've lost the respect of the people that follow you, and you've really lost your stance in leadership. Um, as, we, as we know, what a leader is supposed to do is when there is blame, the buck stops here with the leader, and the leader is supposed to absorb the blame. Um, and when there is success, that's when the leader says, oh, well, we all did it together. Right? So when there's success, it's spread around, but when there's blame, the buck stops here. And so you see Reuben complaining to his brothers and whining about them before, and that's that's not why he lost his, his leadership role, but that's certainly a symptom of him losing, losing that role. And you can even see further his loss of influence. Look at verse 37 of, of chapter 42. 
Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Reuben's saying, you know what? I'll take Benjamin down and I will go ahead and get our other brother back. And he, but he is so lost credi- credibility at this point that his father just basically ignores him and says, no, I'm not, I don't, basically I don't trust you to fulfill this role. You're not going to do it. And so Reuben's obviously having a, a pretty um, tough time here in, in, in that passage. And it's, you know, it's something that he heaped on himself. But, but so that's why when we look at verse 3, it's significant that Judah is the one that speaks up for the group. There's, there's a vacuum here in leadership, and Judah's the one that's stepping into that vacuum and saying, all right, um, somebody here needs to speak. And it's interesting because, again, the father, as the patriarch, uh, has a lot of respect that is due him. So for, for a son to speak up against his father, one, the situation must have been desperate, and two, they likely recognized that um, the fear that was guiding Jacob or Israel's decisions I mean, think about this. What Israel is saying is, okay, you know, we're going to have to do without because I don't want my youngest, most precious son to be endangered. Obviously, he's the most precious son because um, it's by the wife whom he truly loved, and uh, she died, and so this is kind of all he has left of her, and he believes Joseph died, and so this is, I mean, this is his, his, his new favorite, right? But obviously, he's being irrational because if they don't get food, they're all gone, including Benjamin, Right? And so somebody had to speak up to him, and it ends up being Judah. So verse 3, Judah said to him, The man, Joseph solemnly warned us, you wouldn't see us. If you send, your brother, send our brother down with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you won't send him, we won't go down. And then look at, look at Israel. And this is when we talk about some, when we talk a little bit about dysfunctional families and the home and kind of how that can affect people. I mean, we have a real good marker of that right here. Um, Israel said, why did you treat me so badly that you had to tell the man you had another brother? Well, it's probably not an intentional thing, right? It's not like they're going out of their way to say, um, you know, well, we have another brother. In fact, and this is where, again, family dynamics, Father Chris has been talking about this as a thread for the service, but um, family dynamics are one of those tricky things that we see coming up here. Because look at their reply to him. Their reply to him is also dishonest. And I want you guys to, to catch this. They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? That's not what happened. They actually volunteered up this. They weren't under careful uh, examining scrutiny by Joseph when they spoke up. Instead, they volunteered up the information. when they're. Have you you guys ever um, been in a situation where you were either the person who was being questioned or you were in a difficult, awkward conversation, you just kind of talk, over-talked? Or do you know anybody that overshares sometimes when they're anxious or nervous or anything like that? It's something i got to be careful about during sermons, not to be like, well, let me tell you what happened this morning, right? I mean, that's like where people get too personal too quickly, and it's, that, that's one of those moments where, again, when you're anxious and you're uncomfortable um, and you're under questioning, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, a, a lot of stuff can kind of spell out. And that, that's actually what happened. So... They're not exactly being honest with their father when they're making excuses, but excuses are also kind of one of those things, right, that, um, that, we, uh, that, that we tend to volunteer when, when we are worried about blame. So let's keep going on. So again, there's blame casting going around. And uh, we'll go back to verse 8. And Judah said, send the boy with me and we will rise and go that we may live and not die. And then catch what he says. Both we and you 
and our little ones. See a little guilt in there? A little, little guilt manipulation there? And our little ones. And if you, wanna, if you really want to try to tie these passages together, you'll remember that when Jacob was bringing his family back in his confrontation with Esau, and we found that Jacob actually walked, after his wrestling with God or with, with the angel, he actually walked ahead of his family. You remember that? And, and some, some, people, some people have interpreted that as him having really special heart for little ones and caring for them. So that could be the case, and it could be that Judah is appealing to that sensitive part of him, but that's kind of speculation. So, and then, and then I love this. Judah, Judah, I guess, feeling very confident in speaking to his father in verse 10, if we had not delayed, we would have now have returned twice. I mean, it's just like, so, so again, um, Israel is not commanding a lot of respect, just like Reuben was not commanding a lot of respect. And uh, this is one of those ways where we kind of see family dysfunction. Uh, so let's continue. Verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Let's go ahead and continue. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men. For the men are to dine with me at noon. Verse 17. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time. That we, it's because we replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. I'm going to pause there for a second. Um, so backing up for just a moment, Israel sent them down with double the money, right? So the first time they had the money, the first time they were given money, it was put back in their sacks. And so he said, okay, we'll bring that money plus additional money to pay for things, plus some special choice gifts. Now, you know that in our, in our culture, um, when you go visit somebody or you want something from somebody, typically you'll, you'll bring gifts, right? Um, we had some parishioners come over to our house about a month ago, and they brought this lovely orchid for us. I went to parishioner's house about two weeks ago, and, uh, and I was getting out of the car with my wife and my son, and I realized that we had not brought anything. Um, and it was a very evident thing for us, and they were gracious and understanding, but at the same time, it's just, it's still a practice that we have, right? And especially for people who kind of have everything, right? Like, you can imagine that Joseph has everything. Especially for those people, the gifts that they appreciate are typically gifts that are not necessarily expensive, right? I mean, my, my great-aunt 
um, rest her soul, she, she, ha- she was very wealthy, and when it was time to give gifts to her, right, it was kind of like, well, she can afford anything. So what you do then is you, you get something that's either very particular to them, right, that says, like, this, is, this, this describes you, or if it's an official, what, like somebody you don't know, you don't have a relationship with, you'll bring them something that is, that is very um, specific to your home country, right, or your home culture. So, so this is a very, again, so, so what they did is they brought things that were very specific to their home country. Um, one thing that they brought was honey. Well, their honey was actually um, likely not a honey that came from bees, but it was actually likely a syrup that was made from ripe dates that was unique to their region and incredibly tasty. And so um, the honey of, of Hebron, and it's still valued far superior to the honey of Egypt. So that's kind of their special thing that was theirs. Um, pista- they also brought nuts, um, likely pistachio nuts, nuts, and Syria grew the best pistachio nuts in the world. So again, something that they were the best at. And they also brought almonds, which, you know, that, that was just kind of the most abundant nut in Palestine. So that wasn't necessarily like one of their primo things, but it was, you know, again, like, hey, here's our largest export or something like that, right? So again, these are unique to their their culture and their country. And um, what's really interesting when they get here is, is how Joseph instructs that they are approached. Notice that, that in their minds, they had left, you know, they had wondered, you know, they left thinking, well, if we go back there, we're going to be put into slavery, right? Their going to Egypt was not this going of expectation of, oh, we're going to be received and welcomed and everything's going to be fine. They were going in thinking, well, we're probably going to be put into slavery because for all they know, we stole the silver back and they're just going to not give us even, even a hearing and just put us into slavery, but it's either slavery or death at this point, and so we might as well go back and give it a shot, right? Their odds were not good. Um, and so it's really interesting that Joseph's response to them and to the steward is, well, let's prepare this grand feast and this grand meal for them. And we're going to talk about some motivations for that in a second. So again, um, Joseph told his steward, hey, get, you know, slaughter the best animals. We're going to prepare a feast for them. Invite them back to the house. And verse 18, and the men were afraid because they, they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it was because of the money. This is going to be an easy trap. And think about that. They have every right. Like, they're being invited into a palace, and you can think of kind of the dining room in that palace as something that is, you know, surrounded by four walls, right? Like, it's a perfect place for an ambush. And in fact, this, you know, I mean, you probably know from, from other events in, in, uh, in history and in literature that, that dining halls, dining rooms, were actually a pretty good place to invite somebody unsuspecting and take them out. Um, they would be caught. And so again, they are horribly nervous. It is because of the money which had placed our sacks the first time that we were brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Um, I'm not getting into that. It's, it's, actually kind of a, it's actually kind of a funny way to talk about it, too, because what's, a, what's another name for a donkey? Yeah, so they were like, they, it, there's, there's, some, there's some other meaning in some of this thing as far as, as, far as um, the Egyptians falling upon them. So again, so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we come down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put 
our money in our sacks. The steward replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and we had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. So, again, this, what's happening is the steward is also being incredibly welcoming. He's saying, hey, and he's lying, right? This is a lie. Oh, we have your money. You know, basically he's saying, we've received it. We've got your money somewhere. God must have just given you, must have conjured up money for you in your sacks, is what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, it was a mistake, or you took it back. He's saying, oh, no, we, we still have your money. Your God, the God of your fathers, must have just provided additional money for you, or must have, you know, again, conjured it and put it in your sacks for you, so we're okay. And again, and it's, it's, it's weight, right? So, so that there's that equal weight that's in the mouth of your sacks, because they didn't have, they didn't have minted coins then. It was, all, it was all done by weight. So, you know, we have the weight, basically, that we received from you, and you have your weight. And so, let's continue verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. This is interesting. I want to pause here. Do you remember any of Joseph's dreams? This is a couple weeks ago now. Uh, that they were, they were um, dr- dreams of really 11 bowing to the 12th. Do you remember that? Well, this is actually, even though the brothers bowed the first time, this is the first time where all 11 are there bowing before him. And so this is when that prophecy is actually being fulfilled in Joseph's sight. And this is a really powerful scene for a couple of reasons I'm going to explain in a second, but it's, it's a powerful scene and it's an emotional scene. Verse 29, And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. If you're going to put yourself on that scene for a moment, this is... This is this is a powerfully emotional time for Joseph. One, he's having all these evocative emotions of those dreams that he got so punished and berated for by his brothers are being fulfilled, right? So this evokes that, like, um, we might kind of think of this as vindication almost for us, you know, when it, when, um, or an I told you so moment or something like that, where, where it's, it's just a real, like, burden being lifted where it's like, see, the prophecy did come true, Basically, God told me this would happen, and so you have that emotion. You have the emotion that he's receiving from getting gifts from his home that he hasn't been to in, in who even knows how many years, right? These gifts that are familiar to him. You know, I mean, have you ever, you all ever been traveling and something reminds you of home and you get homesick? Or, um, you know, you've been gone for a long time and, and you get, you, you come home and all the smells and sounds and everything is powerful or... Um, you know, say you've moved and you have family come down and they bring you something from your home, which is about exactly what happened. It's a powerful emotional thing. And so he's got, he's got the vindication. He's got these gifts of homecoming. And then he sees his beloved brother, right? The one who didn't betray him. The one who, and again, it reinforces that, right? My mother's son that, that he sees. And for the first time, and it's just, 
he is understandably overwhelmed. This is, this is a, a real emotional moment for Joseph. And so clearly, because we look at verse 30 and it says this, Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. Um, in, in more modern translations, we would say he was deeply moved, but in the original Greek it says his compassion grew hot, which is kind of an interesting way to phrase that. And um, this is the same way, by the way, that the compassion for a mother for a son is described elsewhere in the Bible. And it's even the same way that God's compassion for us is described in Hosea. So his compassion, verse 30, his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So again, his compassion grew hot, and he ran out of the room, and now he's back and he's controlling himself. In verse 32, everybody is being served, right? So he's being served by himself, because he's the head of the household, and traditionally, especially for a man of important position, you actually had your own table at the head of the room um, a lot of times. And also because he was a Hebrew, the Egyptians couldn't eat with him even though he was in a position of authority over them. And so you had him, you had Joseph sitting here, you had the Egyptians sitting there, and then you had the brothers, the Hebrews, sitting there. And it says because eating with Hebrews is an abomination to the Egyptians, which is a really strong word. Um, and it says this, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. A couple brief points. One, why was it, why was it abominable? Why was it an abomination for Hebrews to eat with Egyptians? Um, and again, remember, this is pre-slavery, pre right? This is pre-Moses. This is pre-the Exodus. Well, there's two thoughts about this. One is that um, Egyptians refused to eat cows, and Hebrews had no problem eating cows. And so it could be that, that Hebrew, Hebrews had no problem eating cows, but Egyptians would not eat cows. Egyptians could not eat cows. Yeah, they would not eat cows. And what did you say? But Israelites could. Yeah, yeah, the Hebrews could. Yes. I don't know their whole dietary. I don't know their whole dietary regimen. I really don't. Um, but, but so it could be a dietary law thing. And and if it is a dietary law thing, here's a really interesting point that this going to tie into the New Testament. You guys hearing me on this one? In Galatians two. In Galatians two, Paul jumps all over Peter for doing something. Do you know what he? Do you remember what he jumps on Peter for doing? Paul says, I, I rebuked him publicly to his face. And it was because Peter was separating himself from the Gentile Christians when they were eating and only eating with the Jewish Christians. You all hearing me when I say that? It was, how interesting is it that while the Egyptians would separate themselves from the Israelites, we later have the Jewish people in Peter separating himself from the Gentiles, even though they're all Christians. I think there's a really important principle here. Uh, have you all ever experienced that the same hurts that are done to somebody are often um, done by that person to other people? You ever see that? For example, if somebody, when they're young, is being harshly criticized, they might turn into someone who harshly criticizes someone else, especially with exclusion. If somebody has been excluded, then as soon as they get into the popular circle or the cool circle, they start excluding other people from that same thing. 
Do you all kind of recognize that and see that pattern? What's amazing is we see that pattern culturally across hundreds of years here, and it pops up again in the New Testament, this exclusion. And another reason that they might have been excluded is because um, we know that just prior to this event in Egyptian history, Lower and Middle Egypt were, were actually under the rule of this nomadic tribe of shepherds called the Hyksos. And they had actually come up and conquered portions of Egypt in the, in the centuries just prior to Joseph's time there and had ruled oppressively and brutally over the Egyptians by these nomadic shepherds. And so it could also be that because um, the Hebrews, because the, the, the Jewish people were shepherds, or at least they were nomadic, and, like, and these were certainly shepherds by trade, that, they, um, that there was this burning hatred or resentment or bitterness or even some deep-seated fear of, of nomadic shepherd, shepherding people. In fact, um, and we'll find this out, I think it's in Genesis 50, but there's actually a separate place in Egypt reserved for shepherds to live because that's where Joseph will set up his family, is, is they just didn't, there was this, this real separation. And, and again, it could be because of dietary laws, it could be just um, some form of racism, and it also could just be this fear or resentment against shepherd nomadic people. Yes, Paul? That's, I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's, yes, I, I would say we can certainly infer that from the text. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and this probably, I bet Joseph would make a good character study. In fact, I know he would. I'm sure there's been several out there. But yeah, I mean, you know, so is, there's, there's, I'm sure there's that part of Joseph where he had to live in some level, some degree of isolation, which, which um, it's not fun. So we're going to keep going because we have about eight more minutes and a whole chapter to do. So you guys ready? Let's crank through. Oh, wait, one more thing before we jump in. Um, I want to notice two more things. One, they're amazed that they're sat in the proper birth order, right? Because how would they know? Two, um, Benjamin's portion is five times greater. Isn't that interesting? And we, we, we might do that on a cursory reading and just say, oh, well, it's probably just five times greater because Joseph really favored him. So this is probably just Joseph saying, oh, I love him more and here's why. But we'll find out in the next one, it's actually part of a test. It's actually part of a test that Joseph does. Have you ever had somebody be really, you know, treat you in a certain way and then be really nice to you all of a sudden? Right? Like, you ever know that? Like, somebody who either ignores you or isn't very kind to you, and all of a sudden they're, like, super nice and kind to you? Anybody ever experienced that with somebody? Seems maybe a little bit duplicitous. Beware of that, right? That's a good lesson. Like, beware. Beware of that, because they probably either want something from you, or um, it just basically, it doesn't spell good news for you, right? Like, if somebody who's typically one way treats you very significantly in the other way, just be, be careful. Keep an eye on that. Um, it could be just that they're having a really great day, but um, likely be careful. And so again, his brothers are, there's, there's a trap, there's a test being set up. And his brothers are being lulled into this false sense of security in this moment. And in, in chapter 44, Joseph springs his trap. And that's what we're going to go through very quickly. Then he commanded the steward, then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with, sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Uh-oh. As soon as the morning was light, the ten men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? 
Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So, what do you think this test is? Now that we've read a little bit of the setup, what do you think Joseph is doing to test them? Do you guys have any ideas? What is the, what's the test here? T take, taking what? About Benjamin? Taking Benjamin. Yeah, so what are they going to do about Benjamin, right? What are they going to do about Benjamin? And um, a couple other things I want to talk about this. One, this whole idea of divination. Um, there are about five different ways that people would typically uh, use cups for divination. Um, you probably heard of like tea leaves and that sort of thing. Um, they have inscriptions sometimes on the inside, carved onto the inside of the cups, and depending on how the light reflected, whatever inscription was more visible or popped out was something that could be read. Um, I mean, there were, there, were, there were all sorts of ways that, that there was, they tried to use divination from cups. We don't actually have evidence that I'm aware of that Joseph used cups for divination. This could just be part of the ploy to say, hey, this isn't just a silver cup. This is my, my special cup. Like, this is my silver cup. Um, either way, he's being, he's being deceptive. And so this is kind of the setup. And the steward overtakes them and accuses them. And look at them. They're saying, like, you know, far be it from us. Check us. I'm sure that we're innocent. So... Let's continue on. Oh, and by the way, they're so sure that they're innocent, or they're so just kind of taken aback by this whole scenario, that what they do is they say, um, you know, kill the person who has it. And, uh, and guys, we're going to be careful of the camera, too, if you don't mind. Um, they're going to say, kill the person who has it, and, you know, and then enslave the rest of us. Or what they'll say, you know, so again, kill the person who has it or enslave the rest of us, and, and the steward's like, that's a really harsh punishment. Instead, why don't I just enslave the one who has it and let the rest of you go free? So again, they're pro, they're, they're, you know, thou doth protest too much. I mean, they're really protesting the possibility of this happening. So, verse 11. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. You see how he's building up the drama and anticipation? And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Here the bottom is just absolutely dropping out, right? It's absolutely dropping out. Because they, you know, they made it, they just had a great night, everything was going well, they were going home, they had their brother, they had everything that they needed for their family, you know, everybody's reconciled and happy, and then all of a sudden, I mean, this is it for them, and they know that this is it for them. Um, and one just minor point that I want to point out is that think about the, the repeated references to silver in this passage bring to mind the silver that they sold Joseph for. And what's amazing is that in verses 42 through, I mean, chapters 42 through 45 in Genesis, silver is mentioned 20 times. How many pieces of silver was Joseph sold for? 20. See, the writer is, is, is being, there's a lot of depth and layer of meaning here that, that we might not see at first. So, 
Let's continue. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. This is the test. And I'm going to be brief because we're about out of time. Um, The test here is, Joseph is basically saying, I was the favorite. I was loved. You know, I was the one that, that my dad cared for, and you threw me in a pit and you sold me into slavery. You know, to to for whatever reason that they did that, right? Out of jealousy, um, you know, out of wanting more portion of the inheritance. And he's saying, and what Joseph did in setting his trap, which was really clever, to see if his brothers either had a transformation of heart, possibly, um, or to justify him being vindictive to them. We don't really know what his heart is at this point, but what he did is he said, All right, I'm gonna set up Benjamin as the overt favorite of even me by giving him five portions. So he's now, this is the new favorite, and here's an opportunity for you to get rid of him and save your own skin. Here's an opportunity for you to get rid of him and save your own skin. What's that going to be? What's it gonna be? And so this is a real test for them because they, they could just say, all right, you know what? Benjamin, we resent you for being the favorite. We're going to be off scot-free. We're just going to leave you here, and we're going to go, right? And that would actually be par for, for what Joseph knows of their character, par for the course for their character. And so he sets up this beautiful test to see if the brothers had changed at all during their, their absence. And again, possibly to be set up himself as being justified and taking vengeance. We don't know Joseph's heart at this point. We know that he's obviously being duplicitous, but, but there's, a, there's a really profound test here. We then look at verse 18, and this is actually the longest speech in Genesis, so we're going to breeze through it because we have people showing up for the next E100, which I'm glad that you all are here. We're, we, are, uh, we are recapping last week's E100 right now during this time, so if this sounds familiar, that's exactly what's happening. You ever see those TV shows, you know, where um, it's a weekly series, and at the beginning, they kind of do that short, brief recap? Well, welcome. All right, so, then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord. Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord, and then he goes and he, he kind of retalks through everything, right? And he says, um, basically he says, he, he goes and recaps the whole episode with Joseph. And, and he says, verse 27, let's skip down a little bit. Then your servant, my father, said to us, so basically saying, then, then our dad said, you know that my wife bore me two sons, one left me and said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. So, Ju- so Judah goes back and recaps the whole story, right? Like, we came down to Egypt because of our famine. We told you about the, you know, our situation and how it was, it was really, you know, and bad news and all that stuff was happening. And now we're coming back down. And, um, you know, and when we said, you know, and, and our father, he's already had to grieve his other son because he thought he was torn to pieces. And now this is his last son. And again, let's go to Joseph's heart here. He's, he's hearing about his father's grief over his, him for the first time. Think about that, right? Like, like your beloved father, because he loves his father. Joseph loves his father, um, which is not hard necessarily because his father loved him, right? But he's hearing about his father's grief. 
the grief that they caused. And it's, it's, it's got to be eating at him and tearing at him a little bit. And uh, if you take this one also from me and harm happens upon him, you shall bring my gray hairs down evil to Sheol. Verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Let's wrap up with this, um, because there's, there's a big question mark here and what's going to happen. First thing I want to point out is that Judah steps up again. Judah steps up again, and Judah says, take me instead. And there's a couple things. One, in an honor-shame culture, for, for Judah to bring disgrace is worse than losing his life in this situation. And the pledge he brought upon himself was disgrace. Right to dishonor. It's like um, in, in uh, Japanese culture or some Eastern cultures, in the Middle, Middle East for certain, you, you ever hear of honor-shame cultures? That's where you get the horrible things called honor killings to preserve the family's honor. They kill their own child to preserve the family's honor. Well, honor and shame in this culture is much bigger than it is for us. And so he's saying, I'll be dis like, don't just kill me. I'll be dishonored on top of that. So he took a huge pledge upon himself. And he's saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. If, like, basically, take my life, but leave, let Benjamin go. Number two, what's happening is um, Judah stepping up again. Judah, was, Judah, was, Judah likely had a real change of heart from his interactions with, Tam with um, Tamar. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to refer you back to an earlier chapter of Genesis for that, because I really don't have time to get into that this week. But Judah is one of those that actually has experienced a character change and a growing up by being, by being called out and shown to be somebody who, didn't lack, who lacked discipline and righteousness. And it was basically thrown in his face by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And, um, and so you actually see his character change. It's one of the people in the Old Testament that you can actually watch a transformation. And again, I'm going to let you go back and do some research on that on your own. But that's a, that's a real big moment for, for Judah. And the third thing that I want to point out is how strong the connection is between Israel and Benjamin. In verse 30 it says, his life, he's, Judah's referring to his father, is bound up in the boy's life. Um, this is the same phrase and the same way of speaking that David and... Um, Jonathan end up having in each other for love for them is that their life is bound up in one another. Some people read that as them having a um, physical relationship, and that's just biblically not true. That's, that term bound up in the life of is one of the strongest terms for a soul connection between two people. And so what I'm going to leave you with, and, and Father Chris is about to come in and um, give us the rest of it, is I just want to leave you with this, this moment of truth that, that Joseph has set up for his brothers and this really wonderful way in which Judah kind of steps up to the plate and says, you know what, this time, this time, I am not going to betray the brother even though he's the favorite. I'm going to step up in his place. And you imagine that young Benjamin is watching Judah speak up for him, right? Young Benjamin is seeing him. What I want to end with is this is, this is a map of the tribes of Israel and how they're broken up. Here's Manasseh, for example. This is the River Jordan. These are all the tribes of Israel. 
You notice that the tri- where the tribe of Benjamin is? You notice where the tribe of Judah is? You imagine that Benjamin looking up at Judah is forming a strong bond between, him, between them because Benjamin is a kid here. He's, a, he's just a boy. And he's looking at his adult brother standing up for him and, and saying, I will be that person to take that place. And historically, what's really interesting is when Rehoboam splits the kingdoms into the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom, the North Kingdom becomes Israel, the South Kingdom becomes Judah, and guess which tribe is absorbed into the South Kingdom, is joined to the South Kingdom? Do you know the tribe? It's Benjamin. Benjamin and Judah are the tribes that form the South Kingdom. They're also the tribes that, you know, the Northern Kingdom was taken out in 722, but the Southern Kingdom lasts until I think it's 586. And so you see, you, you know, you can kind of trace back the roots of their bond almost to this moment of Judah standing in the place and taking that on for Benjamin. But I'm going to leave you with that. Let's pray out. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time. God, we pray that you would continue to instruct us through your word and help it to apply us in our own lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.